I would wake up from a bad dream about like sitting in the doctor's office and getting told I was a diabetic and then waking up and being like, that is real. That is a real thing. I'm still a diabetic. So I think re-remembering every day for probably about two or three months was pretty tough. You're listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, helping people run their blood sugars one workout at a time. Hey everybody, welcome to episode one of the Diabetic Running Podcast. I'm your host, John Fody. Today's episode is an introduction to the show and an interview of myself by a good friend of mine, Meg. I want to say, first off, thank you so much for listening. Episodes will be dropping every Monday with motivating interviews of people connected to diabetes and running in a ton of different ways. While you're listening, feel free to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at the Diabetic Running Podcast, or at the diabeticrunningpodcast.com. Also, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you can get fresh episodes of the Diabetic Running Podcast every Monday delivered straight to your phone. And without further ado, here's the interview between Meg and myself. My name is Megan Ledesma-Vera, and I'm a registered nurse, a novice runner, and a generally active individual. John, tell us about yourself. Tell us your story. How were you diagnosed with diabetes, and um, how did you get to start the Diabetic Running Podcast? I feel like most importantly, you said that I'm your friend. I feel like that was at the end of that, but it's definitely probably one of the biggest reasons that I think I chose you to do the interview, Mm -hmm. um, only of a... I feel like you were there the whole time. You were there. I'm pretty sure like the first week I got diagnosed, we were hanging out with you. And I remember going to the beach and me telling you like, I just got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And you were like, have you gotten any steroids lately? And I remember that every now and then I read something online because I'm a hypochondriac and I sit there and think about what caused me to get diabetes at 27. Um, And and sometimes I think about that conversation. mm -hmm. I I remember the relief in your face when uh, you... It realized that, that someone else knew what you were talking about and that you had someone to vent to for a brief moment. Um, cause it, I, I could just see how terrified you were. Um, like you just kind of froze up as, as you were talking about it. Um, just kind of still, it seemed like you were still in shock that, and disbelief that this had happened. Yeah. I remember it was kind of nice knowing that you're around sometimes because I'm like, oh, well, she's a nurse and I just got diagnosed with diabetes. So maybe I'll need a nurse yeah. here at the beach. You know? <laughs> um, not that you were by any means prepared to deal with me and on your day off i'm sure the last thing you wanted to do was take care of a newly diagnosed type one but it's always a relief hanging out with you because uh you're every healthcare provider's dream you're a compliant um diabetic patient you're someone who pays attention to your blood sugar most of the time when they they come to see us it's because they're in dka uh, yeah. it's because uh, something traumatic has happened um so it's it's always a relief hanging out with you guys and watching you check your blood sugar on your phone and on your app all the time. Um, and, and see, I think you. I'm, I'm probably obsessive though. I think, uh, sometimes I probably stress my medical mm-hmm. providers out because I would go in their office every week and I'd be like, Hey, here's every single number I've had for right. the past four days. Here's all, you know, 620 of them. Cause I think at one point I was testing my blood sugar like 25 times a day right after I got diagnosed. Like Do you manually. feel like it slowed down? Do you feel like you've gotten it, used to it a little? It slowed down a lot, but probably not until I got my CGM, I don't think. I yeah. think when I when I got that, I felt like, okay, this thing checks my blood sugar 288 times a day. Now I don't have to stress about it so much because yeah. I can see all my trends. Um, and I think a lot of that was probably just the anxiety of being diagnosed and trying to balance you know, the work and mm-hmm. 
it, my fitness at the time, I was super stressed about that because I wasn't able to run. What changed that, with your fitness? I didn't do anything for a month. <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest thing that changed. I was too stressed out to work out. Um, and I had been training for a 50 miler I was going to do this month actually, which I obviously didn't get to do because yeah. I lost so much training, but what helped I think you that get was over the biggest that thing. Yeah. Sorry. What helped you get over that hump? I think just time. Yeah. Like just knowing that I can inject myself with this much insulin, eat this much. And two hours later, I won't pass out if I go for a mile run. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's the initial stress is because you do have like some pretty ridiculous lows when you first start learning like your dosages. Um, and it's scary because it, if you think about it, you've been living at, you know, blood sugar of 300 for months, you know, it, depending on how long it took you to get diagnosed. Um, you've been living at that threshold for so long that all of a sudden bringing your blood sugars down feels terrible. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I ever hit 90 and I was frantic. I think I, I had me and my wife were moving at the time, Rachel, and we were in the process of moving because, you know, I got diagnosed and I'm like, well, now I got to move out of my roommate's house. So I'm going to get my own place because I'm going to be here for a while. And so we're moving and I had eaten lunch. I had taken the right amount of insulin that the doctor at the time had told me to take. And all of a sudden I started shaking violently and I was like, oh, I'm about to pass out. I was freaking out. I went to Rachel. I was like, I got to test my blood sugar. And I went and tested it. I think it was at like 95, which is like where it's probably where you're sitting right yeah. now. You know what I mean? You're super comfortable there. Um, but I was ready to go to the hospital. I was like, no, oh, take them to the hospital now, you know? Um, so I think getting past that point was probably the biggest thing, but yeah, I just realized I never answered your question. So <clears throat> intro to me <laughs> back to the beginning. I'm John Fody. I'm 27 years old, uh, type one diabetic now, uh, even though I don't, I don't think I view myself as a type one diabetic yet. I almost feel like it's not been long enough to view myself as a type one diabetic. So, um, sometimes I re-remember that, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, this is not a dream. I'm really a type one diabetic. Um, uh, I'm an active duty army aviator. So I'm a soldier in the army still, um, which is kind of another stressor, you know, um, in my life, just kind of balancing that and, you know, balancing this diagnosis and some, and then still kind of balancing the running and the exercise as well. Um, and then, you know, now I'm the founder of the Diabetic Running Podcast. Um, and I think my story starts uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, I don't. Did I ever talk to you about my dad dying? No. Yeah, so <clears throat> June of 2000, I'm dating the podcast now, but June of 2016, my dad had a stroke. So I didn't know it, <clears throat> but on he, on Father's Day, I went to his house. I was like going to visit him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been suffering dementia for like a few years, you know, so I think it was kind of one of those things where I didn't like calling him. So if I ever did see him, I just kind of showed up, Yeah, you know, because I think calling him stressed him out. It was right. kind of painful for me because... Unfortunately, he didn't always like really like immediately remember who right. I was, you know what I mean? But he was always still there. And when I saw him, we'd get to talk and hang out. And um, But he had a stroke in June. Um, and so I went on Father's Day and I couldn't find him. He like wasn't home. There was no sign of him. And I was so stressed and freaking out, you know. Um, and finally, I get a hold of his girlfriend who says, you know, John, you know, your dad had, you know, a stroke a few days ago. And, you know, the paramedics came and the police came because he was like unruly and the paramedics couldn't get him right. in the van. and. Um, and so they took him to the hospital. He's over at, you know, the hospital right now. You can go see him there. And so by this point I was already back home like two hours away and I went and saw him and he was almost completely gone. 
Uh, so it was kind of tough, I think, seeing him like that. And really from June until um, he passed away in October, um, I dealt with that. And I think that was like a huge stressor in my life, which uh, may have been the stress that gave me type 1 diabetes, but probably yeah. not. <laughs> so, but yeah, for months I spent disassembling his entire life, you know, breaking down his entire house, going through every single possession he's ever had, mm -hmm. putting it in the keep pile, the maybe pile or the throwaway pile, you know what I mean? And so all the way from, I would say August through October, I was doing that. And then on October 3rd was the day that it was about four or five days after we decided to pull him off life support that he passed away um, in hospice care in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And so I think after October, I was like super low. Like I had been dealing with his house and his estate. And at one point I was his guardian and I was just going through all of that while still trying to work full time and fly full time. Um, and, you know, after I came off of leave, I was still balancing the estate in his house, but he was gone. And, you know, that kind of stressor had started to fall back. And then I think I slipped into, I think what I would call a depression. And I don't think it was like, like a clinical depression, you know what I mean? I think it's kind of an understood low after you lose a parent, you know, cause I don't think I had ever lost. Well, I know for a fact I've never lost anyone like really close to my right. life. And so when I lost him, I think I was just kind of looking for the next big thing, you know, mm -hmm. like the next thing that was going to kind of get me out of this year, please God, get me out of 2016 right. and into 2017. Um, I had a move coming up and so I was like, well, I need something before then. You know, I got three months until I'm moving out of here. I need something to like get me going now. Um, and at the time I had started drinking a lot just to like help the nights and help fall asleep because I was having really bad and, nightmares. And yeah. I was having bad nightmares about my dad and, it was kind of strange at the time. So I wasn't sleeping well. And so on the nights where I was back at my house and not at his house, I would just drink like seven or eight beers and eat a bunch of junk food and fall asleep on the couch. Yeah. Um, and so I had, was doing that one night and I watched a documentary on Netflix actually about ultra running. Mm -hmm. um, and it follows a documentary. It's a documentary about an uh, ultra runner called Nikki Kimball, who was doing like a 270 mile run all the way across the state of Vermont through like this trail system called the long trail. And I watched it and I was like mesmerized, you know, here I am like half drunk, you know, watching right. this documentary. Um, and I've never been a runner before, but I watched this documentary. I think it's called finding traction, like an hour of her like suffering in the woods and running. And at one point she would be running and she, she was like 200 miles into this run. She had something like maybe 30 minutes for like over the course of days. And in the middle of the woods, she would just break down crying and she would just cry for like 10 minutes. And her pacer that was with her, her friend would like be like, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm just freaking out. Um, and then she would just start running again. Like it never happened. She would just start running again. She'd get something to eat and she'd be fine. Something about ultra running from that moment, like captivated me. And I think within 30 minutes, I went online and signed up for my first ultra marathon. Um, and so I think that was uh, it was late October, like right after my dad, my dad passed away and I signed up for an ultra marathon at 50 K, which is 31 miles. Um, and I signed up for that in the beginning of February, I think it was like February 11th of 2017. And that was it. That was like the thing that I needed in order to get myself out of that rut of my dad. You know what I mean? It gave me a goal to train for. Um, and it kind of gave me something to look forward to again, which I think I had kind of lost, you know, you found your own way of coping. Yeah. And it was through running. Um, yeah. and not that I condone running ridiculous amounts of miles that you haven't <laughs> trained for. 
everything um, in, in moderation. Kit, yeah, everything in moderation, but I, it helped me out a lot. Yeah. It, it was kind of the one thing that I needed in order to like literally get out of bed some days. Um, and so I just started running. There's there some trail systems that I had access to in Tennessee at the time where I was living and I would go and run. I would run, you know, I would just, I think I was running probably 20 to 30 miles a week, which for me at the time felt like insane. Nowadays, you know, I know for a fact there's people that run 200 mile weeks, but um, for me, I was just going out and running trails um, with that calendar date on the wall of, you know, hey, February, beginning of February, I'm going to run, you know, this 50K. And I did. Um, and so February comes around, I run that, I, I say run, I barely finished. I hadn't trained at all. You know what I mean? So I think I finished it in like nine hours, which was like second to last. And I don't even think there was much like elevation change you know, it's, it. was like Northern Alabama. So there was some elevation change, but not enough to constitute running 30 miles in nine hours, you know? Um, you know, here I am training now, I'm hoping to run a marathon in four hours, a little under four hours. So but hopefully, how long? I'll, I'll, hopefully I'll be in better shape, but, um, yeah, go ahead. How long after you completed your first ultra marathon were you diagnosed with type one diabetes? So yeah, that's kind of the next step of the story was, so I moved to Alabama. Um, and, you know, here I am in a new job and kind of a new environment down here in Southern Alabama. I finished that 50 K and I'm like, well, what's next? You know, um, 50 miles naturally. I was getting a lot better at running. I was getting faster. I was getting healthier. And I was losing tons of weight. I was like, this is amazing. You know, I went from 240 pounds at the end of October because, you know, during my dad's death and cleaning on his house, I would literally go to Buffalo Wild Wings every night, have four appetizers, six beers, and I would wake up the next morning and then clean out his house all day. And then throughout the day of cleaning out his house, I would like break down in tears, like looking at something from my childhood and then go back to cleaning, go to Taco Bell for lunch, come back, you know, just living like total garbage. And so I think... At the end of October, I was 240 pounds, and after I ran that 50K, I think I was probably around maybe 220, 225, something like that. So I was like, man, I've lost this weight, and I'm getting faster. 50 miles, that's the next thing. And so I planned on running a 50-miler at the end of this year, and I just started training for it. I was like, I'm just going to double the training that I've been doing, and I'm going to keep running. Um, <clears throat> at the time, uh, you know, I was still in the army, of course. And so I was running a lot in the morning for PT with, you know, all the other soldiers. And then I would run at lunch if I could. And I would run at night at the gym, you know, I was just running all the time and weight just kept falling off. I was like, this is incredible. You know, I was telling people like, Oh, you know, back in October I was 240 pounds and now I'm, you know, 190 pounds. Anyone can be a runner. All you gotta do is run, you know, <clears throat> This is by April, you know, I'm like running maybe close to 50, 60 miles a week between the ground and the treadmill and I'm losing weight and I'm feeling pretty good. I'm eating a ton, like an insane amount. Like I could eat almost anything I wanted and I wasn't, I was still losing weight. And I was like, this, this is literally the secret to losing weight. All you have to do is sign up for an ultra marathon and start training. Um, and then May came around and May I was literally sleeping for probably eight to 10 hours a day, but I was still functioning. I, I was still running. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think by the end of May, I started feeling like, Oh crap. You know, I'm, I feel like crap all the time. My runs are getting slower. I've lost a lot of weight, but I've been running so much. I think I'm overtraining. Beginning of June. I take, I'm still in the middle of a, a military course, which is pretty competitive and it needs a lot of my time and I'm exhausted all the time. So I'm like, I'm going to take two weeks off from running. You know, I'm just going to take two weeks off. I'm going to recoup. I'm going to come back. End of June is going to be my time. I'm going to finish this training for this 50 miler. 
And then those two weeks roll by. I do an assessment run at the end of those two weeks, just a two miler. And I step off for this two miler thinking, man, I'm about to smoke this. I'm going to run like two six minute miles, you know, faster than I've run since I was in college. And the exact opposite happens. I'm like a hundred meters in and I'm like drenched in sweat and completely exhausted. And I'm like, I'm amazed. I think I finished in like 18 minutes or close to like 18 minutes, (laughs) you know, five and a half minutes slower than I wanted to. Um, and it was that day that I realized that I got to go see my doctor. I've got yeah. low testosterone. I've got mono. I've got low iron. Something's wrong. I've lost right. too much weight. Um, I think that morning I had weighed in at like 169. And I was wow. like, that's, that's not healthy. You know, I've lost 70 pounds yeah. in less than a year. That's not healthy. You know what I mean? Um, and I, unfortunately for me, I already had the stress of thinking like maybe type 1 diabetes was an option. Mm-hmm. But I had ruled it out. Weirdly enough, Rachel, uh, my wife, her mom was a employee for Nova Nordisk for years. So she sold insulin her entire career. She's a pharmaceutical rep. And a few weeks during my break from running before I took that two-mile assessment, I was at Rachel's house. And Rachel's mom was like seeing me pee 16 times a day. She right. had seen how much waste, weight I was losing. She kind of put all my symptoms together. Mm-hmm. And I think she had mentioned it to me like, oh, you know, I I know this person who is 20 something and got type one diabetes. I wonder if that's what it is. And she was like, no, that's probably not it. You know what I mean? You're probably fine. And I was kind of hoping that too. I'm like, well, that's so unlikely. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's definitely mono. I'm just sick. I've overtrained. No one should go from weightlifting, you know, and benching 300 pounds at 240 pounds themselves to ultra running. Like maybe that wasn't a good idea. Um, and then June 21st, got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, and it kind of all made sense. You know, all the symptoms and everything made sense. And the stress and anxiety ramped up from there. Right. Um, and then, you know, here I am going on my seven month later and starting the Diabetic Running Podcast. I think um, the reason I wanted to start it was from that initial feeling of getting diagnosed and being so absolutely lost and having no resources and being having the thought that I was the only person in the world who was a type one diabetic who wanted to run. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it took me a few weeks to realize maybe there was a few other people out there that were that way. And I think it took me months to realize there were tons of other people out there that way. And then of course it took me seven months to realize I wanted to find a way to pull all of those people in into one voice, you know, and to kind of make it so that everyone has the opportunity to share their story and kind of share their, you know, triumphs and failures and, you know, the literal ups and downs of uh, diabetes uh, on a podcast. When I was training for my ultra marathons, I would put, you know, an hour long podcast in my ear while I ran and it kind of helped the time go by. And so I fell in love with podcasts and I felt like, you know, the diabetes community needs this so that no other person, no other 27-year-old or whatever age, you know, you get diagnosed with diabetes, they shouldn't have to feel alone. And they should immediately be able to find me at the Diabetic Running Podcast on whatever platform they listen to, um, put me in their ear and immediately feel better about what's happening around them. I think the, <laughs> that... I, that's a long answer to your no, question, but... It, the, and it's a wonderful answer. I, I think that um, endurance athletes are a relatively small community in and of themselves. And then uh, diabetic athletes are even more rare. Um, So 
From a clinical perspective, we have uh, patients that come in all the time that are terrified to be active because they haven't gotten a grasp on managing their sugars just during daily activities, just getting up and doing their normal routine, much less um, adding in how they're going to manage their blood sugar and the peaks and troughs of it while you're just inducing uh, the stress on your body that exercise does. Um, And there are so many people that hold themselves back because they don't realize that that they can keep on living, that they can keep pushing themselves the way that that you've learned how to push yourself in such a short period of time. So are those type one or type two diabetics? Both. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like, um, you've, you've been through so much stress and so much trauma in the past year. Um, I, I think it's, commendable that you've been able to push yourself to the point where you can not only accept um, this diagnosis and that you're able to manage your sugar, but you've also gotten to the point where you're doing the things that you were doing prior to your diagnosis. Um, and and you're proud of it and yeah. you're comfortable with it. Uh, it's, I think it's I just want to become normal again. I think I, I stress my wife about it out, about it a lot, you know, cause I think, there's a difference between me pre and post diagnosis. I think I just kind of want to get back to that old person, you know, right. Um, and not feel broken. Do if you, that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I completely understand because with any type of medical diagnosis, you feel broken anytime that you have to supplement your body with something that it's not <laughs> producing on its own, yeah. you feel broken. Um, and I, I can't even imagine having to, to take insulin every day. Um, like usually, you know, when you're talking to patients, you talk so casually about it um, to try and make them feel comfortable. But <laughs> it it's extremely difficult. You're changing yeah. your life routine. That was probably, that was one of the harder parts I think about it too was accepting that. Yeah, yeah, accepting like I think everyone thinks about the zombie apocalypse, and you think like, okay, what would I do in the zombie apocalypse? Um, and as a pilot, I think to myself, you know, oh, I could take this aircraft and I could fly out here and we'd be safe because. I'd have all my family with me and we'd have an aircraft and all these supplies. Right. But now it's like, oh, now I'm a diabetic and I need insulin. What I, I, zombie apocalypse comes, I'm kind of screwed, you know? Yeah. I'm going to have to raid the pharmacy. Yeah, I'm going to have to raid the pharmacy. <laughs> um, and then that might only be good for six months. You know? yeah. These insulins are supposedly expired, <laughs> you know? So I would have to test out the length of that. But I think that took a while to get used to, that being a, attached to literally attached to an insulin pump because I'm on a pump, but yeah, being so dependent on an external substance to just be normal. Right. You know, I mean, I've never, I've never, I've always been, you know, I've always had white coat syndrome. I think I've Mm -hmm. hated going to the doctor. I think because I've always been scared. They're going to tell me something's wrong with me. (laughs) And because we usually do. (laughs) So I think I literally lived my own nightmare going in and then looking at me and being like, you are an insulin dependent diabetic and we don't know why. Have I seemed super stressed to you in the past? Because I know we've eaten meals before where I'm sure I was completely out of it. <laughs> there, um, I think I've had a unique perspective because I've been able to talk to you and see what you're going through. But I also get to see what goes on in the background because I'm friends with your wife, Rachel. Yeah. Um, and I have her talking to me and being like, yeah, he's he's definitely stressed. I feel like he's on WebMD all the time, like Googling his symptoms and stuff. Um, yeah. So I, 
I've been able to, to see you, um, putting on the facade of being calm and, and seem, <laughs> seeming like you're coping with it. Um, yeah. and then I get to talk to Rachel and, and she, uh, you know, just is questioning, uh, what's going on and if you're doing okay. And at what point does she need to worry about the level of anxiety that you're going through? Um, but I, I saw that peak and I, I yeah. saw it start to come down. Um, hopefully so, that's passed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, once we got to the point where, um, like we were sitting down at dinner and you weren't checking your blood sugar six times within the hour that we're sitting there, yeah. <laughs> then I could tell that you were a little calmer. <laughs> I think, yeah, some of that was because of my CGM, which it allowed me to check my Apple watch instead right. of actually having to check my blood sugar 10 times. But I think one of the other joys of the CGM is that once you get confidence in the data that it's giving you, it requires you or it allows you to check your blood sugar less because you mm -hmm. know you've, you've lived through every scenario, you know, after about seven months. And after a few months on the CGM, you can kind of see the exact way that your body is reacting to things. And after a while, you don't even need to check it as much anymore. Right. Whereas I think if I was manually checking, I would still be stressing about what's happening between my checks. Right. You know, am I really going up or am I really going down at what rate? It gave me that, which allowed me, yeah, to not be the weirdo mm -hmm. at the pizza chain, at the pizza <laughs> restaurant table that's like, you know, checking my blood sugar for the set of time. Right. Because um, I just had a slice, you know, and I'm mm -hmm. curious, okay, is that slice broken down yet? What kind of carbs are in that? You know, I calculated for 40, but was it 45? Mm -hmm. And if it was 45, is that making my blood sugar spike or am I gradually rising? Am I gradually rising or am I spiking? Am I spiking or am I gradually rising? And I would go through that. Over and over again in my head. Um, maybe I'm just a perfectionist. I don't know. No, not <laughs> yeah. at all. Because I, I think this Super is... Super stressful. This is something that I, like, I'm sure that anyone would go through, especially with an adult diagnosis. Um, yeah. And we've talked about this. Uh, although um, like insulin pumps and checking your blood sugar and everything has... Um, progressed tremendously within the last 50 years. Uh, like we've gotten past the point of retroactively just testing your urine and doing dipsticks and, um, and checking ketones and stuff to the point where you can have real time, uh, yeah. information. Um, and, and okay. that you can have a, a pump that will check it and give you the right insulin dose. Um, so it's amazing, uh, that, that we've gotten to this point, but it's, there's still so much farther that we, we can go. I'm fortunate that I have incredible healthcare. Yes. So I can't imagine getting diagnosed with type one, like a lot of people do. And then they have to stress about the healthcare. You know, I hate that people have to do that. I've had multiple pharmacists. I don't now cause I'm on the CGM, but I did have multiple pharmacists right when I got diagnosed that had that like, you know, did one of those like cartoon, like Marga, 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 what? and they're looking at the computer, like, how many times a day does this say you test? Right. <laughs> I think at one point I had my pharmacist um, request 20 strips a day. And they were like, they would have to pull out a calculator and are like calculating all these ridiculous numbers yeah. to give me a month long prescription for exactly. test strips. You know what I mean? And the, all of them would be like, what do you, how do you test 20 times a day? And I'd be like, well, that's simple. I test when I wake up, I test right before I run, I test in the middle of my run, I test after my run, I test right before my breakfast, I test an hour after my breakfast, two hours after my breakfast, right before my lunch, an hour after my lunch, two hours after my lunch, right before my dinner. Yeah. And then, and then I normally work out again in the afternoon. So I test before my workout, during my workout and after my workout. Mm -hmm. 
And they're looking at me like, this kid is absolutely insane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this kid is clinically crazy. And I just looked at him. I'm like, this is what I got to do. You know what I mean? I just, I'm too stressed about my numbers to not. Right. You know? And so I can't imagine being that stressed while yeah, being but- rationed three for the day. Because yeah. I would have providers tell me like, hey, make sure you're checking three times a day. Exactly. I'd be like, what do you mean check? How could I only test three times a day? I checked mm-hmm. 27 times yesterday. Yeah. And they'd be like, 27 times? You only need to test three. I'd be like, no, people should test more than three right up there. I think no student, you know what I mean? No, I agree <laughs> because it, like we had talked about earlier, your body is used to you being at 300 all the time. So and it's unfortunate for me too because like a diagnosis like that also changes like my career, unfortunately. So I think a lot of people... They get diagnosed, but they can still do all the things that they wanted to do. Yeah. Um, that's not true for me anymore. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of the other weight that I would I bear day to day, which I think is... I'm just now really accepting. Yeah. And I'm just now letting that stress kind of fall off my shoulders and I'm not carrying it around all day. So what are your goals uh, with this podcast? I know that you had talked earlier about how you just want to be there for everyone. Yeah. Um, number one. I think, well, I know the number one goal is to motivate diabetics to get out and run. It's it's really that simple. Um, and I say run, but throughout the, you know, throughout the episodes of the podcast, you're going to see that there's going to be a lot of runners, but there's going to be rowers, there's going to be cyclists, there's going to be bodybuilders, you know, that's actually coming up. And so there's going to be a whole, the whole gamut of athletes that are diabetic and I always want to make it focused on endurance and kind of how runners can apply that to their, you know, their times, essentially. You know, I want people to be able to, you know, apply their goals to a quantitative thing, which for runners is normally whether they're 5K time, 10K time, or whether it's a distance. You know, they want to run one mile, two miles, 100 miles. I want it to be quantitative and I want people to be able to set quantitative goals, but yeah, the number one goal of the Diabetic Running Podcast is to motivate diabetics to get out and run and train. The number two goal is to provide consistent content for the diabetic endurance community, which I, I really feel like it, I want to say desperately needs, but it, it definitely needs at a minimum. Because I know right when I got diagnosed, there wasn't really anything that I could easily reach out to to learn about running with diabetes. And I had a bunch of doctors and I had like six doctors at the time because I was seeing all these different people and they were trying to like definitively diagnose me with type one diabetes, you know, and not right. like type 1.5 or like some other sort of crazy thing. And I would ask all of them. I would be like, I want to run a 50 mile at the end of this year. How can I do that? You know? And all of them were like, well, I don't know. I think you probably could do it, but you know, you need to get your insulin under control and you need to understand how this works for you and this works for you. But None of them gave me, I would always leave the office with nothing truly tangible to go out the next day right. and use. Like I never left their office feeling better about my run that I wanted to do the next morning or the run that I wanted to start trying to do in a month you know, or two months, which were longer runs. So right after I got diagnosed, I didn't really work out at all for like three or four weeks. And then about a month later, I started feeling like, okay, I got to start trying to run again. You know what I mean? I got to start doing something longer than these 20 minute, like push up workouts I might right. do in my living room. And at that time I still didn't have anything tangible to use. And I was like really craving a resource to reach out to, to say, Hey, this guy is a type one diabetic and he runs 100 miles. And at 20 miles, he talks about feeling like this and, 
you know, he says it's super doable and he checks his blood sugar kind of like this and he's on a pump and these are the types of insulins that he uses and this is what he eats in order to stay regulated. And he checks his blood sugar about 20 minutes later, like these tangible things that I could then go apply to my own fitness to make me feel better about being a type one diabetic who also wants to be fit and set like aggressive goals. You know, I think everyone should have goals and especially runners. I think we're predispositioned to have a race, you know, that's your next right. goal. And so to be a newly diagnosed type one and to not have a goal and to not have running and to not have even like tangible, a tangible path to get there, I think it was like kind of stressful. So the number one goal is of course to get diabetics out to run with the number two goal of being, okay, when you start running and you actually get there, I want you to have content to be able to use in order to help you get to your goal and content on a consistent basis. You know, every Monday in, in the case of the diabetic running podcast, every Monday you'll be able to put headphones in or on your car ride to work or at work. When you're sitting on your lunch break, you can listen to the diabetic running podcast absorb content from some incredible athlete who happens to have type one diabetes or a nurse or a nutritionist or a doctor or an exercise physiologist about type one diabetes and about running and about exercise. And you can take that immediately into your evening treadmill run. You can apply it and you could feel more comfortable knowing like, Hey, I'm not the only person out here who is struggling. And I'm not the only person who did everything right that day, got on the treadmill went from 120 to 50 in a matter of 10 or 15 minutes and felt defeated. You know what I mean? You were, you were not that only person that's felt like that. And Oh, by the way, here's a guy who runs a hundred miles and he's felt like that a hundred times. Listen to him talk about it on the diabetic running podcast. Yeah. So that's the second goal. And then I think the third goal is of course, um, well, the third goal is for non-diabetics to have a platform to be able to kind of look into as well. So whether you're a mom or a dad or a sibling or a friend or a healthcare provider or a trainer, you can listen to the diabetic running podcast and you could learn about kind of all the different things that diabetic athletes have to juggle type one diabetics specifically. And I'm sure type one, type two diabetics do this as well. They have to balance all of these things while they're trying to exercise, you know, they're balancing the carbs in one hand. They're balancing this, you know, thing called insulin on the other hand, and then in the middle with their body, they're balancing their intensity and their level of movement. And so I think it's, it becomes really difficult. And for someone who's not a diabetic, I can see how that would be really confusing to try and get in the head of a diabetic and to think about all the things that they're having to think about and that are naturally stressing them out, evolving, you know, a revolving exercise. And I think you had mentioned that a lot of people come into the clinic and are hesitant to exercise because they're failing at that juggling act, which is right. type one diet or diabetes and exercise. They're either, you know, nervous about the carbs, they're nervous about the insulin, or they're nervous about taking their body to a physical point where it starts to eat up all the glucose that's in their blood and starts yeah. tapping into glycogen or whether it be their liver's glycogen or their muscles glycogen. And they don't know how that's going to play out. I'm still nervous about it sometimes today. To this point in my career, I still haven't, as a diabetic, I haven't run past, you know, that hour and a half point. So I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe my body will just be like, this is fine. We're going to keep a level blood sugar. Or maybe my stress level shoot up and I go up to 600. You know, I don't right. really know what's going to happen. And so the great thing about the diabetic running podcast is that diabetics and then non-diabetics can tap into that resource, listen to an episode, 
about an amazing runner who just finished a marathon and they could talk about all their trials and tribulations throughout that marathon and you as the diabetic or non-diabetic have a better understanding of what that's like. And I think that's a really long answer to your question as well. I've been really good about rambling, but no, you've been great. And, um, I think that one of the, the things to point out with what you said is not only the limit of resources that you have, um, as an endurance athlete and someone who's an endurance athlete and has diabetes, but, um, the credibility of the resources that you have. Um, and I think that what you're doing is supplying an outlet where not only is it going to be consistent, but you're going to have credible resources. What do you think that the hardest part has been about being diagnosed with diabetes later in life? I haven't, well, I wasn't diagnosed at 10, so I don't know what it's like to be a child and battling type one diabetes and then being a teenager and growing up and having to live all the struggles of being a teenager while battling diabetes. I think from what I've heard and from what I've read, that's really challenging. And it seems like a lot of people go through what's called diabetic burnout, where they just get to a point where they're so fed up and they just don't want to deal with it anymore. They kind of withdraw from managing their diabetes and just kind of really give all of their, you know, fate that it's just, or they just assume everything's going to work out. Right. Um, and so I hope I never hit that point, but so I only know what it's like to be diagnosed later in life. So I can say it sucks. <laughs> it, it's not so fun. Um, but I think if I had to say the hardest part about being diagnosed later in life would be re-remembering. I don't, have you ever lost like a really close loved one? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of sucks in the sense that you wake up and then there's days where you re-remember that they're dead. Yep. And I did that with my dad for months. Mm-hmm. I would have a really terrible nightmare or I'd have some sort of bad dream or like a bad vision and I'd wake up and I'd re-remember that he was gone. And I was like, that sucks. You know what I mean? Like, that could have sworn that was a dream. Yeah. Um, and I would do that throughout the day. Like people would, I'd hear on the commercial about father's day or I'd hear something about someone's dad. And I would think about like, Oh my dad. And then I'd re-remember that my dad said, and that was always the hardest part of my day. Yeah was for six months, seven months, eight months, every day re-remembering that he was gone. Um, and so I think that was probably the hardest part of that. And it relates to this because I, I think I did that with diabetes for so long. Yeah. I would wake up from a bad dream about like sitting in the doctor's office and getting told I was a diabetic and then waking up and being like, that is real. That is a real thing. I'm still a diabetic. Yeah. So I think re-remembering every day for probably about two or three months was pretty tough. And for instance, I'd go to get out of bed and I would forget that, oh yeah, I'm tethered to an insulin pump and mm-hmm. it just ripped out of my side. I'm like, crap, you know, in those moments you re-remember um, how human you are and how broken you feel at times. And it, it kind of sucks. <laughs> um, but yeah, re-remembering is, I th- at least for me, I think has been, has probably been the number one hardest part. Um, and then I think I talked a little bit about it earlier. It's kind of like the first experiences, having those first experiences as a diabetic and being like, okay, well, you know, this is the first Christmas I've had with diabetes. I didn't have to do this last year. And so first experiences are tough, you know, the new year's coming up. So now I'm going to have to be on like new year's Eve. I'll have to think back like, okay, last year I didn't have diabetes. Now I'm having to manage that this year. Mm -hmm. And I think so far that's been kind of the toughest part is like, 
doing all these first things with diabetes, you know, uh, I'm training for a marathon. And so when I run this marathon coming up in April in Nashville, it'll be, you know, the first time I've hit the marathon distance as a diabetic, you know, which I think that'll be a happier moment, but right. I think it's just tough constantly doing all these things for the first time as a diabetic. Um, and it's probably just as hard doing it the hundredth time, you know, I'm sure someone who's 40 who got diagnosed in their twenties every now and then re-remembers that they're a type one diabetic and they're like, this is a real thing. I'm still a type one diabetic. You know, I mean, that's, this is not a dream. This is not a bad nightmare. And I, I haven't woken up from it, but, and then, yeah, we talked a little about it, about it earlier too. I think it's the feeling broken. You know what I mean? I think at least in my line of work, my whole career, I've always felt like a superhero. I think the, the trait that gets you to where I am, being in the military and being an aviator, it, it makes it in order to get here, you kind of have to have the personality of feeling like you, you can't die. Yeah. You have to feel, you have to invincible. be the type of person that feels invincible and you just kind of always feel like you're better than other people and you're on top of the world. You don't go around saying you're better than other people, but inside you kind of feel like you're better yeah. than other people and it, you kind of have to, in order to succeed. That confidence pushes you. Yeah. yeah. And so for the first time being reminded that oh, I'm not, better than anyone. In fact, I'm not better than anyone at all. And I'm super broken. I think remembering that and feeling like that, regardless if it's actually true, I think it's probably the last hardest part of being diagnosed later. Just having that self-actualization that you're fragile yeah, and that you're human. Um, do you feel like it ever makes you angry? Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. I think I take it out on myself more than anyone. Like I would never take it out on anyone else, but sometimes I just walk around and you know, I'm about to eat something. And so I'm trying to count my carbs and I'm giving myself insulin and I'm trying to get my insulin timing. Right. So, you know, I'm like counting my carbs and giving my insulin, you know, about 30 minutes out from my meal. And then I'm having to stress about, okay, is that meal actually going to be on time? Or is it going to be really super late? Is the waiter going to forget my order? And, and so I start balancing all these things. And sometimes I find myself, what I would call task saturated, even though I'm not doing anything. I might be sitting at home and playing on my phone and watching TV, but for some reason I find myself like extremely stressed about my diabetes and I, for no reason, like I'm not doing anything other than just worrying about it. And I think, I don't know if that answers your question at all, but it, that I've been doing that. And I think yeah. sometimes I still do that. Um, and I'm almost forgetting what the original question oh, was. Yeah. I was just asking if it, if it makes you angry um, because it's. Yeah. So I, and that, yeah, I get angry in that sense because I start feeling really task saturated about my diabetes, even though I'm not doing anything with mm -hmm. it. Like I'm, I literally might just be sitting there and thinking about all the different variables that could arise with food and insulin and exercise. And I start getting angry, even though I can't do anything about it. Um, and I've never been the angry person. I've always been like overly calm, like maybe calm, even right. in scenarios that I shouldn't be calm. And uh, I think a, a part of me has changed, at least internally, having to deal with all those variables like we talked about. Well, I, um, I hope that you know that I'm always here for you. And I hope that your listeners will know that they're not alone either. And that, yeah, I think that's quite, yeah, it's one of the most important things <laughs> to know that, you know, podcasts like this can help and they can kind of just make you feel a little bit more connected to the community and create kind of a center point for everything, diabetes and endurance so that, you know, it's not scattered across the internet. You can find it right. all here on the diabetic running podcast in one place every Monday, tune in, you know, and you're going to come out the better 
you're going to, you're going to come out on the other side a little bit better. I, I think for, for me, just as a non-diabetic, this is incredibly motivating because, um, it, it gives you that, that glimpse to realize, um, that I'm fortunate. I, you know, I, I, I only have my, everyone's got their problems, yeah, I guess. I, I only have right now my, my inner turmoil and my, my battle with myself that, oh man, do I really want to go to the gym right now? Um, so I feel fortunate that I don't have the, the same juggle that you do. Um, and I know that well, it motivates me when I see you at the gym. So I still have that, <laughs> but what's funny now is that my insulin regimen is built around my exercise program. Mm-hmm. And so I really don't know what would happen if I stopped working out. Right. I, I kind of, at, at the time when I really got ingrained, like I really did the meat and potatoes of my insulin regimen. Mm-hmm. I was running one to, at least once a day, probably twice a day. Yeah. And so now sometimes I stress about, okay, well, if I stop working out for a week, how much more insulin am I going to have to give myself? Because my whole plan is designed around your exercise, around me running twice a day. Yeah. And so I really don't know. I'm almost stuck. Yeah. <laughs> I have to run every day. And so I have those same struggles where I'm like, man, do I really want to exercise today? And then I think to myself, well, do I really want to have a high blood sugar later? I'm like, no. <laughs> and I really want to run fast later this month at this, you know, next 5K or 10K yeah. that we do. So I'm like, oh, I'll just go run. It's incredible that you, you've yeah. turned this into a silver lining though. Oh, I think there, there's got to be a silver lining, yeah. right? If, if, if you didn't find a silver lining in the worst scenarios, I don't know if you could come out the other side. Hey guys, once again, thank you for listening to episode one of the Diabetic Running Podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at the Diabetic Running Podcast or at the DiabeticRunningPodcast.com. If you think you or anyone that you know would be a perfect interview for the show, please set me up and I'll see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.